You're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Grisel Damari Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Coming up on today's episode. Danny Bowen, welcome to the podcast. Ten years ago, authenticity was such a hot word. Oh, I'm going to take you to have the most authentic version. But I think that now we're living in a post-authentic world. I think right now, credibility is the most important thing. Today on Culture Call, we are entering the world of food. And in particular, we're going to be thinking about the New York food scene. Um, In the U.S., we have, as you know, Grizz, a lot of chef superstars over here. That's your Bobby Flay, your Barefoot Contessa, your Emeril Agassi, your Samin Nosrat of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. What are the most famous food people in Britain? I feel like it's Mary Berry. (laughs) It is Mary Berry. It's not only Mary Berry. Um, There are other uh, British chefs who Americans know, I think. Gordon Ramsay, Jamie Oliver, of course. Yes, Jamie Oliver. I remember binge watching um, YouTube clips of Jamie Oliver in a dark time in my life. (laughs) (laughs) I have gotten past that point, but I do know how to make an excellent salad dressing (laughs) in a jam jar. Yeah, I mean, TV and I guess more recently YouTube is the way that chefs become famous people, basically. I mean, Nigella Lawson um, was the classic TV series. Uh, I'm thinking also of of Yotam Ottolenghi, who, you know, has been popular for quite a long time now. Um, Not to throw shade on these people, but I feel a bit bored of them, actually. Yeah, it's funny. These are like celebrity superstars and they've been around for so long and you think there would be new ones all the time, like there are new actors or new musicians. Um, But instead, we think in terms of restaurants, I think, like, we know the restaurant that becomes popular in our city, but we don't always know the chef. And the yeah. you know, food world knows the chef. They're legends in that industry. But outside of it, their names aren't very well known. It sort of reminds me of what you were saying in the last episode about the art world, that like the really recognizable names are not the ones that are doing the most interesting stuff. Mm. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's probably true in loads of fields, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And I think in the food world, one of the people really pushing culture forward is Danny Bowen, who's the founder of Mission Chinese. Um, So, Lila, I'm going to come clean. I know very little about Danny (laughs) Bowen, and I have never been to Mission Chinese, sadly. Um, Can you help me out? Danny Bowen was really um, one of the first people to do a few things that have become quite common. Uh, One is to start a pop-up restaurant. I think he started the first Hmm. pop-up restaurant in San Francisco, Um, And two is to kind of redefine what, you know, Chinese food can be. Now there's fusion restaurants all over the place. Everybody's trying to play with like, you know, Mexican Chinese things and, you know, Korean burritos and that sort of thing. I really think that comes from him. He basically doesn't do the normal chef things. The food isn't normal. The, The his look isn't typical. The way that he collaborates with other food people or artists or fashion designers is also really different. Um, And also his food is really, really good. (laughs) Good. Okay. I like the sound of him. Um, And I'm looking forward to hearing more later in the show. Grizz, so you were on holiday. I missed you in my inbox every morning. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about what you've been up to. So after Freeze Week, I quite quickly booked myself a holiday off. I went up to the northwest of Scotland, to the Highlands, um, and it was a complete digital detox. I had no internet, no mobile phone reception for a whole week. Um, That is the millennial dream. It was. It was blissful. Um, And I've got three things that I want to tell you about. Uh, The first is, when I was on holiday, I brought a 
physical copy of the London Review of Books. Wow, they still exist. Yeah. (laughs) And I read it cover to cover. I mean, it was extremely old school. I never normally have time to do that. Um, So it was great. There was one particular piece which really stood out. Um, It was a hilarious and I think very perceptive essay by a writer called Patricia Lockwood. She is, um, she's kind of famous on the internet. She's, She's a poet, but also a writer and a critic. Uh, she's very much on Twitter, and the piece has been all over Twitter as well. Um, she's been on the podcast, right? She's been on the podcast, yeah, a couple of years ago. Um, mm. She's a really, really funny writer. I recommend stuff that she's done generally, but I think this is particularly good. And it was about John Updike. Um, Updike is generally known uh, as a kind of crusty old mid-century misogynist. Um, <laughs> yeah. Famous for these terrible sex scenes that, you know, demonstrate a complete lack of understanding of kind of female anatomy. Um, (laughs) Can you remind me some of the books that Updike has written, his most famous books? Lila, I haven't read any of them. (laughs) (laughs) Really? No. I've really been kind of put off. I mean, it's things like Rabbit Run is the kind of uh, famous one. In a weird way, although she kind of really gets into his misogyny and is kind of pretty scathing, it actually also did make me think maybe I should read some because... She's actually very fair about kind of the points where his writing is really good mm-hmm. and the fact that it's actually quite a pleasure to read it. I think it's a clever piece because it's really kind of poking fun at the idea that literary criticism can ever really be objective, that a review is ever not about the reviewer. Um, she really kind of brings herself into it in a way that, like, as readers, we do. And let me just read you the first two lines because they're brilliant and such a good Please. Um Okay, she says... I was hired as an assassin. You don't bring in a 37-year-old woman to review John Updike in the year of our Lord, 2019, unless you're hoping to see blood on the ceiling. <laughs> so good. <laughs> That's true. Um, she knows her role. Yes. Basically, it's a really gripping, surprising piece. Um, I would love everyone to read it. It's in our show notes, and we've posted it on Twitter. So tell me number two. So number two, I went to see a play last night at the National Theatre, Uh, here in London, called Translations, uh, which is by the Irish writer Brian Friel from, I think, 1980. It's set in in Ireland in 1833. Uh, The British army are there and they are making a map of the country. In the process of doing this, they're they're also trying to anglicise the the Irish place names. So back then, people um, in Ireland mostly spoke Irish and not English. Um, It really makes you think about the English language and about colonial histories and I think the real violence of imposing imposing a language on people and kind of erasing an indigenous language. Yeah, there are so many examples of that now. It's I can't talk about being Armenian again. It's like getting ridiculous. But but I was thinking about the fact that as I get more connected to my Armenian-ness, there are two dialects of Armenian. There's Western and Eastern. And um, if I was ever to want to learn Armenian, Western Armenian is the one that um, genocide survivors sort of took with them. And it's one that's sort of dying. So it's the one that my grandparents spoke. um, And it would be the one that would connect me to my heritage. But if I wanted to go to Armenia and speak to people, that's not the one that they use. So the question is sort of which one do you learn? Mm. Like, do you learn the one that's endangered uh, or do you learn the one that's used? And and. Uh, And what are you doing it for? And who are you doing it for? And what does it mean to keep a culture alive or a language alive uh, is on my mind, too. Yeah, because it's about more than just communicating. Yeah, it's about identity. But it's about so much more than that. Exactly. 
I mean, it's, it's just a very kind of fertile ground, I think, for a play. For sure. And so my third thing, and which is also linked to this, is I was thinking about this idea of kind of translation and language um, when we were driving around in the north of Scotland last week because the road signs are in Gaelic and in English. You're right. I forgot about that. Yeah, it's it's really striking. When you get north of kind of, I don't know, um, Perth, like Dundee, you, you really notice this. And actually it's not because there are people there who only speak Gaelic. There's actually nobody in Scotland who only speaks Gaelic. And there's very few people who speak it at all. I think it's something like 1% of the population. Wow. But language is important and Scottish nationalism is a big movement. And seeing all of these road signs, it did make me think about how kind of keeping a language alive is an important part of preserving a national identity and one that's quite distinct. You know, this stuff is really political. Yeah, it's very political. So while I was puzzling over these Gaelic road signs, uh, <laughs> Lila, what, what, what have you been up to? Uh, something extremely different, um, but also in some ways uh, learning another language. Um, I am writing a piece for you, uh, (laughs) actually, (laughs) about astrology. I am deep in it. Uh, I have been interviewing astrologers. I had my chart read recently, um, and I worry a little that I'm at risk of becoming the FT's astrology correspondent. I mean, (laughs) I've been talking about it on this podcast quite a bit. Um, what I'm trying to figure out now is not whether it's real or not. I think that's sort of beside the point. But I'm interested in why it's grown in popularity at this moment in culture. Yes, I mean, you know, this is the financial times. Astrology is a business story as well, right? It is, yeah. I mean, the demand for astrologers uh, to read your birth chart and the demand for astrology apps uh, are really exploding Um, And there isn't really a lot yet set up to satisfy the demand. So it's interesting to see how the the business of this sort of spirituality is going to meet the demand. With my editor hat on, I just want to flag up that your astrology piece is part of this big uh, special issue of the Life and Arts section of FT Weekend um, that we're doing on the 9th of November called Next Gen. And it's going to be full of great pieces about the kind of issues like astrology that are kind of shaping the lives of the next generation, from online video to clubbing to climate change activism. We'll post all of these pieces in our show notes when they come out um, and on Twitter as well. And Next Gen is also a one-day festival (laughs) on the Saturday, the 16th of November. So this is the week after the Next Gen special edition. It would be great um, to see some of our listeners there. We're doing lots of talks. There's cultural stuff happening. There's food and drinks. I'm hosting a panel on feminism. It's going to be really fun. And people can buy tickets at ftnextgen.com. Okay, that's my broadcast over. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Now I have a broadcast, but it's a little bit different. Basically, as we start to pull together an eventual episode on astrology, um, we want to put your voices in it. So... I would love for you to write in or email us a voice memo um, about how you feel about it. So these are the questions that I'm curious about. If you like astrology, I want to know in what way it brings value to your life, kind of what you like most about it and when you turn to it. Uh, If you reject it, I also want to know about that, like what parts of it really don't sit well with you. So the best thing to do is open your voice app on your phone, uh, tell me your thoughts, and email it to culturecall at ft.com. The other option is to write us um, and we will put your thoughts in a future episode.
So on to Danny Bowen. Uh, Lila, can you tell me a bit more about him? So the interview started about a week before Danny came to our newsroom here in New York when I went with a friend to eat at his newest restaurant, Mission Chinese, which is about a year old, which is in Bushwick in Brooklyn. It's funny, my friend Julie described it, I think, very beautifully in that it was like being in a hot tub, but like underwater in the hot tub (laughs) where there were these like colored strobe lights on the ceiling and they were like slowly moving. And the music was this loud electronic beat. And we were really in a different world for about the two hour dinner that we had. The food was super spicy. It was hard to define. It was really good. I mean, we ate kimchi that was covered in ice, but the ice was infused with chili oil, so it was red and spicy. We ate lotus root and rice cakes. And on the menu, it said it was glazed in sticky, sweet, salt, sour, Sichuan stuff. (laughs) And that's exactly what it was. I mean, it was a lot of me saying, Julie, what is this? Um, While inhaling it, like every bite was delicious. Okay, I'm looking at his Instagram right now, which is at Danny Bowen, B-O-W-I-E-N, Chinese food. Um, We'll put it in our show notes for listeners in case they want to join me now. Um, What I can see is a lot of um, peak hipster. It's kind of urban. There are tattoos. There's a man in a crop top. There are obviously lots of food pictures mixed in there as well. It's extremely edgy and cool. Is Is that what he's like? Yeah, I mean, he's not just hype. He's won the James Beard Award for Rising Star Chef, which is kind of like the best new artist Grammy of the food world. Um, He's sort of an outsider, so he's made restaurants that reflect that. And instead of trying to fit in a category, he sort of ostentatiously rejects them. He almost makes a show of it. But making a show of it is also part of his identity. He's almost a brand, you know? Um, And his brand has developed over the past six years quite publicly. He had this college bro vibe of this, you know, guy who just stumbled into this best new restaurant. Um, But he's visibly quite dramatically changed over the years. He stopped drinking. He started publicly soul cycling. He chopped off all of his hair. He got very fashion forward. You know, he's got tattoos all over his body. His nails are often painted. He has a whole cultivated look. So why now? Why did you want to talk to him at this moment? I was interested in what it has been like to shake up a world like the food world, which likes to follow rules. I wanted to know how he thinks about what he's built. And I basically wanted to get to the nuance, you know, whether he's just trying to be cool and cause trouble, which could be his reputation, or whether he actually cares a lot and is trying to do something very deliberate, um, which I found to be more of the case. Danny Bowen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for coming. So you're known for many things, uh, but primarily for being the founder and chef of Mission Chinese. Um, And you're kind of celebrated for redefining and subverting what Chinese cooking can be and specifically what Sichuan cooking can be. Um, And I have a lot of questions about that. (laughs) Hopefully I have some answers. (laughs) Excellent. But before we get into like what you've done and why it resonates, I wanted to learn a little bit about kind of how you became interested in food. Well, my path to food uh, is an interesting one because a lot of food very much for a long time has been about heritage and like someone telling the story of where they're coming from or the food they ate growing up. But for me, it's interesting. If I were cooking the food that I grew up eating, I would be cooking. um, I grew up in Oklahoma. I'm adopted. I'm Korean. um, And I would be cooking a lot. My mom made like everything had ground beef in it. (laughs) So like, you know, we're very working class and... um, 
my dad worked for General Motors. Um, to me, vegetables were always out of a can and like always had some sort of like butter in them. <laughs> they were very buttery canned vegetables at every meal. Um, and typically like hamburger helper or something really quick and easy. I didn't have asparagus, like fresh asparagus until I was like 19. Mm-hmm. When I chose to move out of Oklahoma to go to San Francisco to attend culinary school, I did not grow up cooking Chinese food or Asian food. I didn't grow up eating Korean food. The first time I had Korean food was when I was 19 wow. in San Francisco, right when I got off the bus from the airport. Um, <laughs> I'd love to hear that story. Um, I remember like the 31 Balboa was the bus I took. I think it drops at like 6th and Balboa or 9th and Balboa. There's this restaurant there called Muguboka. I remember that it had this sign that said grand opening. And it's just like, it's like, what is that place? And I was like starving. And I was also really excited because there wasn't Korean food in Oklahoma um, at that time. So I just took my suitcase and everything, walked in. And the owners of the place just started speaking to me in Korean. Like, and I was like, I don't wow. know anything you're saying because I don't speak Korean. And then I was like, you know, I want to try anything. And I can honestly say the moment I had it, I remember I had... I think they started me off kind of like safely. They gave me like spicy pork barbecue. Like, but they also gave me like grilled um, mackerel, which mm. was like so good. You know, I just felt like it's something I'd always been eating my whole life. Chefs are very curious people and are, you know, kind of on this journey, you know, in pursuit of like maybe flavor or the best version of something or to provide someone with an experience. I guess for me, like it's it's been interesting because I haven't like, I don't necessarily have like a tie to anything that I make, which is why I think that Mission Chinese is so different. Yeah. Um, Do you think not growing up with a strong food culture or like connection to a certain style of food or history of food has made it easier for you to like experiment now? I think it's definitely helped. If you'd have talked to me 10 years ago when Mission was starting, I would be like, oh, like who cares? Like I'm not trying to be authentic because I wasn't because I'm not like I'm the least authentic chef, I think. When you come, when things come down to it, if you were to be like, Danny, is he cooking authentic Chinese food? No, the answer to that is no. And I think at that time, 10 years ago, authenticity was such um, a hot word. Everything had people like, oh, I'm going to take you to have the most authentic version of this. Chefs, all chefs, all we really want to do is make people happy. And we all want validation. We want people to like, we just want to know that someone has enjoyed themselves and like, like something. And for like, you know, a long time, the way to get to that end result for a lot of people would be like, oh, well, this is the most authentic version right. of this. Because authenticity meant so much for so long. But I think that now we're living in a post-authentic world. I think right now everything really is credibility is the most important thing. If you look back towards the beginning, is there a time that you really remember like making people happy with your food? I mean, I would I could tell a beautiful story about how like this like family came in to Mission Chinese once and like they all like, you know, really connected over a great meal. But no, I mean like in a vain way, like <laughs> when Anthony Bourdain and when Martha Stewart came to Mission Chinese, Anthony Bourdain came to San Francisco and he was doing a show called The Layover. He ate the food and he would just not stop talking about how great it was. And then I was like, wow, this person like actually believes in me. And then Martha Stewart, she got a reservation for 24. It was in, in San Francisco at the pop-up place. And then the two seats next to her were empty. Like, and it wasn't because she didn't want someone to sit next to her. It's just so that more dishes could be around for her to taste. <laughs> and I remember her tasting through all of them and being like, oh, my God, this is so spectacular. And then she had me on her show and, like, I made hand-pulled noodles. There's a really embarrassing YouTube <laughs> clip of me. I think I weighed, like, maybe I looked a lot different than I was drinking a lot of beer back then. And um, 
I just I don't know what was happening with my hair back then and like <laughs> um but yeah I think that when that we started getting those like celebrities or the people the food people that I'd always looked up to I'd always grown up like just oh my god like the the thing they would come and like say that about you know anything I did and then, you know so I did those moments I guess like you know, your own identity can't be easily put in a box, right? You're Korean, but weren't raised in a Korean culture, and you cook Chinese food, and that cooking introduces people to Chinese culture, but you're not Chinese. Um, The way you dress, I mean, maybe you can describe your fashion sense, but it also doesn't fit a category. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with your identity or your Korean identity and, and how it's changed or yeah. Basically, do questions of identity interest you, and how do you think about them? Identity definitely interests me. I feel I feel like today, you know, it's all about identity. In 2019, there's so much emphasis put on, like, who you are, where you come from, what you stand for. I find that that can be really great, but I also can feel like it can be very problematic. I grew up in a very, very, very religious household. So my parents were, and not even necessarily by choice, I grew up in the, the buckle of the Bible Belt in Oklahoma. I grew up in Oklahoma City. And so everyone was like kind of like putting their best foot forward and they lived their lives around the idea that their identity was everything. My mom and dad were like great people, but you know, on Sundays we kind of became this type of person that we weren't. We dressed up like we wouldn't dress every day. We would like go and act like we wouldn't act every day at church, right? And the whole time I was like, this doesn't seem genuine to me. You know, maybe it does to other people, but it didn't to me. And so like, so I think that when the topic of identity comes around, like I... I've, it's just been a journey. Like, I am i didn't know my parents growing up. And I spent a lot of my time, life, whether it was being very religious or being adopted, like, living and trying to, like, kind of live in a way that the odds were in favor of, right? So, and, like, my responses to people's questions as a young child would be, like, first thing with people would be, like, why are your parents Caucasian and you're not? You're Korean. Right. Like, it was very alarming for a lot of people when we go to a restaurant and try to make a reservation or like try to walk in to eat on Sundays after church people would assume I was with a different family or a different huh. party they'd be like what Wait, but you're not with them and so at a young age I learned really quickly how to like disarm people's questions or make people other people comfortable which is probably why I'm a chef now because I want to make people happy and comfortable but mm. for, you know for the longest time I was like I don't I, I didn't understand I didn't know why everyone was so caught up on what authenticity was mm-hmm. and um Something I definitely had str- had struggled with for a long time, but it, I, to be really free of that now, to actually, and also in the world we live in, people to be interested in, like, well, I don't really care about the story so much. Is it good? Like, yeah. people just want to know: is it good? You yeah. know, is it credible? When did you feel like you were freed of that? Like, mm. when did that change? I think after moving to New York and after opening Mission Chinese here, in like 2012, um, I was turning 30 at that time, and I was doing what everyone else was doing just following this like this career path but I didn't think it I didn't feel genuine to me didn't feel like something I wanted to do and I didn't want to like please the people that you have to please to get popular in certain circles to get the Michelin star or whatever else you need to become successful um so I kind of wanted to break away from that one of my earliest memories of living in New York mm-hmm. is in like 2012 going mm-hmm. to Mission Chinese yeah <laughs> the first yeah. one oh, on God. Orchard in the Lower East Side uh and it was really buzzy, and I was, like, waiting in line mm-hmm. uh, forever <laughs> yeah. with, like, a cup of beer from yeah. the keg. And, you know, yeah. it was – and you go into the back, and it was sort of this whole, like, world. Yeah. Um, and the food was, like, crazy and mm-hmm. spicy and delicious. And 
Um, and then a year later, it shut down. Yeah. By the health department. Of, by the health department. Yeah. And also by the building department. That wasn't always publicized. <laughs> oh, we good. Had, both. Everybody came for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I um, mean, and it was a rodent infest. I mean, I just remember thinking, oh, God. Like, New Yorkers can't have nice things. Like, the no. rats always ruin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'd moved here from San Francisco. And again, like, I thought that, I thought that was like the end of my life and that happened. But right. moved here from San Francisco where we're operating as a pop-up. I I, I did not have any um, business acumen whatsoever when I came here. I didn't have even the right people around me to advise, you know, at that time with Mission Chinese Food, 2012, it was named the restaurant of the year by the New York Times, right. which is like nuts. I mean, like, because <laughs> yeah. it was a shithole. It was like a shack. Literally, right. we took the lease of this restaurant as these like wide-eyed Californian kids like being like, and it was just me. And I was like, oh, I'll take it. This is great. You know, and like, but it was an illegal space. Um, it, literally the back kitchen in that restaurant, the back dining room in the restaurant, you would have to walk through this really cavernous long thousand square foot space yeah a, like a long hallway to this back room which was a beer garden that they had just like enclosed in plywood and <laughs> if any of the neighbors upstairs ever wanted to just throw a cigarette butt out that probably would have caught on fire right so that was one of the reasons second reason was that you know we no one really wrote about this but after we left we like we we actually did we sued the landlord because the space we were renting from him there was like a, a mouse problem that was coming from his um building mm -hmm. and um it's a low east side of course and what's great is new yorkers are really polite they're like they're nice about it they're like oh it's you know it's new york there's right of course they're the most problem but like you know when the media gets a hold of something it's like it's an infestation it's this and this and this you know we learned a lot like that was my first big learning experience of how to fall down and get back up again and like at the time i thought that was the end of my life if you really look at it everyone gets closed by the health department at some point for something how has it felt for um, a lot of the learning that you're doing to be happening so publicly. Mm, I mean, I can't. Yeah, I didn't know I was signing up for that. Yeah. You know, like I, I didn't know even if Mission Chinese Food would work when we moved here. I feel like San Francisco was so good to me, but I had to kind of like, again, play by the rules. Even once we became successful, I had to act happy in certain circles. I had to act like things were okay that weren't okay. And when I came to New York, I felt very liberated. I felt like for the first time, I actually could just be myself and do whatever. Someone told me once, like, um, you know, they love to like build you up to tear you down, to build you back up again, you know. And so I didn't know. I We don't, I never had a publicist. I still don't. I don't have a PR company, none of that. Like so no one was ever like, here's what we're going to do to get you to this point. Um, but I guess to answer your question, how does it feel to have everything played out so publicly? I mean, it's kind of like authenticity, right? Authenticity is about like heritage and something being a certain way and prestige and like this idea of perfection has been what was taught to me and that I'm known within the food world as being that person that has very publicly gone through the ringer and like, you know, is still here. And I think that's, I'd be comfortable being known that way because that's a real, authentic, genuine, true story of what life is. Like it's never perfect. You mentioned earlier that you used to drink a lot of beer. <laughs> um, and uh, the lifestyle reminds me a little bit of that archetypal sort of chef's world that's described in Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. And it was unhealthy, unhealthy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. extremely unhealthy. And a big part of your public story is your physical transformation, right? You stop drinking and you go to SoulCycle. What was the reason for that? And do you think that that's happening in the food world across the board or no? <laughs> I think def I definitely, I know in the food world for sure, like chefs are just um, 
definitely taking the idea of like health a lot more serious. I mean, the way we cook and the way we treat ourselves and our bodies. And like, I think that that's all changing now. I think even the way that many people run their kitchens, like it's not about just getting like quote unquote, getting shit done or making shit happen. Like that's what you hear that so much. You got to get it done. You gotta make it happen no matter what. That doesn't really work. I think that like now people are a lot smarter, especially like younger generation of cooks. They can see the mistakes that, you know, their predecessors have and had made that like affect them directly. You know, I know a lot of chefs that have lived on both sides of the coin and like I'm a, I'm a very obsessive person. And like I think that obsession, thriving in chaos, really making it as hard as it can kind of be, mm-hmm. it's a very chefy thing to do. I think that that's all changing now. That veneer of perfection has been chipped away in many ways on the back end. And like, you know, I think a lot of people are realizing it's not possible. I think of the links that we push ourselves and the coping mechanisms that we have had to use and we do, people maybe still do use, they're not sustainable. I certainly don't see myself going back to like using those unhealthy ways to cope. The food world has sort of a certain veneer on it. Um, and there are certain expectations about what a chef is supposed to look like and how they're supposed to behave. And I'm curious about, like, what you think the rules are and which ones you're cool with and which ones you reject. I think gut instinct is a huge thing. You know, the times I've kind of gone against that, um, I've kind of regretted that. Mm. But um, Can you give an example? With restaurants, much like many other professional careers, it's like, you know, as an owner, you know, you're the person that's going to be there forever. But like people are going to come and go. And being an adoptee, that's a hard that was a hard thing for me to grapple with. I really did try for a long time to cultivate this group of people that would be around me. I thought forever. But, you know, I think there's a timestamp on anything. It just was a time and a place. How would you describe your time and place now? You have two restaurants. Mm -hmm. You have. Mission Chinese in Chinatown, Lower mm-hmm. East Side, which is big and grand. And, yep. and then a Mission Chinese in Bushwick, which opened a year ago a year on ago. Saturday. Right. Yeah. Hey, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, and, you know, it like subverts expectations, right? I went last week to mm-hmm. the one in um, Bushwick and you're under all these LED lights and mm-hmm. it feels kind of like a nightclub. And then mm-hmm. you're eating Kung Pao pastrami. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like ate these Korean fried lamb ribs oh, that yeah. were like, ugh. They're I didn't so know what I was eating yeah, when yeah. I was taking bites of that, right, of it. Right, right. but it was like jiggly and tender mm-hmm. and spicy and cr- crunchy, and yeah. it was really awesome. Yeah, thank you. I'm curious, sort of what what you're going for with the different restaurants and how they fall under your your vision for Mission Chinese right now. My time and place now is that like I'm growing up, but I definitely feel a little bit more stable. I mean, the last couple of years specifically, like with opening a restaurant, you know, with closing other restaurants, like whether it was Mission Chinese Food or a Mexican restaurant called Mission Cantina, there was just a lot of like chaos. Mm. And I think chefs thrive in that. And for the first time ever right now, I'm there's nothing really chaotic going on. And I'm also not trying to like open up 20 more restaurants, you know, Um, with Manhattan specifically. With Bushwick, we were like, what would it be like if we didn't do too much with the food? Like the food is cool. It's good. I we don't need to like prove ourselves again to like the critics because I didn't want to play that game. If the critics come through and they're like, this sucks, it was better in 2012 or whatever, then cool, that's what they think. There's not like a level of ego that I don't have that anymore. I'm not scared anymore. I feel like there are certain dishes that we can do well. I think if we try to do other things, it would kind of feel like we're trying too hard. Um, I feel like for me, like the idea of a restaurant and Mission Chinese specifically has been about like the energy that the space gives off and just also it kind of feeling like an escapism of sorts. I, I think that's the best part of restaurants. Like in New York, some of the best restaurants have like the worst food. 
and I won't name names, but like, <laughs> and I don't, and I don't say that in a bad way. Like, you know, I like restaurants that the food, there are better pastas at other restaurants aside from Emilio's Bellato. But I like Emilio's Bellato because it's just an amazing space. Yeah. And the energy in there is cool. And there's pictures of everybody on the wall. And like, there are a thousand restaurants on Mulberry Street. But to me, that's my favorite one. Yeah. You know, for me, it's about creating a vibe. And, and I think with the one in Manhattan, with Bushwick, we were like, what if we, it's next to a nightclub. So we're like, well, obviously it should feel like a nightclub. And, you know, you go see shows and like, the lighting is so important to seeing a show. Like most, seeing a, if you ever see like a music venue in the daytime, it's like seeing a dive bar in the daytime. It's not very exciting. Right. It's, but when the lights go down and the fog machine comes on and all that stuff, it's really, you kind of, you, you, you're, it's okay to kind of like escape for a few hours and like enjoy something. It feels very of the moment. Trendy. Right? Very trendy. Mm-hmm. And um, I do want Manhattan to feel um, different. I also want it to feel very New York and very timeless. You talk about authenticity and not necessarily being authentic or attached to it. But mm-hmm. these institutions, like, they create their own version of what's authentic just based on, like, you go to Peter Luger's mm-hmm. for yeah. a steak and that's, like, an authentic steak. It, like, defines yeah. what authentic right. is. Right. Um, and so will Mission Chinese Food, can that create its own version of what authentic? Yeah. I guess not Chinese food, but I think, I think it's just something. like I think it's just like ideally it can just be like this is what this person was this is what they wanted to do. Like right. you know, it's like if if the idea I hate the idea of a chef driven concept, but like it's like, oh, that's their spot. Like that's the thing that they did. Like that's the restaurant. And so it doesn't do it's not necessarily defined by like a, a type of cuisine or yeah. like it's not like it's all over the place. Cause I feel like that's how I eat at home. Like, even before I came here, I had like <laughs> three different types of salad and some hot sauce and a bagel. You know right. what I mean? It was like, it's just like what you want. Like what, it's like, this is what this person wanted. Like mm-hmm. This is what their idea was. You do a lot of collaborations mm-hmm. and they also don't strike me as like traditional food collaborations, right? Mm-hmm. We created a scent, like a cologne mm-hmm. with men's brand Hawthorne and you collaborated with Arizona Iced Tea mm-hmm. and you were brand ambassador for Uniqlo, right? And they feel more like artist collaborations than food ones you know it feels more like you're curating a lifestyle brand what's the process like for you to decide who you collaborate with why and is it all part of some bigger picture or is it just like this feels authentic to me right now that's a good question i feel like if something feels definitively like a cash grab i most likely won't do it and because there has to be a purpose behind it and so and everything I've done has had a purpose. Some of it's straight up for vanity's sake. Like, <laughs> you know, with, with Uniqlo or like when we did like when we did that ad campaign or with like Montclair, it was like I, when I was a little kid, I always wanted to be a model. In Oklahoma, I was like one of the only Korean kids in my high school. You know, fast forward to when I'm like kind of an adult and I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, and it's great publicity for the brand. Um, with Arizona Ice Tea, that was like a collaboration that we got a lot of kickback within the food world for. Yeah. Because there were a lot of people that were like, why is he doing this? Amongst the elite, more elite, you know, food world people, I won't, they, they were like, well, this is a really sugary drink. And like, why would he partner with this? And, and I was just like, that's just classist and elitist. Every restaurant in, that I've been to, even the fine dining ones, most of them serve Coca-Cola. Chefs don't really have to divulge what's in a recipe. Pastry and like desserts are very sweet also. Like the idea behind that collaboration was like, I wanted to reach an audience that I wasn't reaching already, and that was like the kids that are buying these 99-cent cans of, of Arizona iced tea. In the industry, if you don't like break outside of your comfort zone or what you're doing, it's very, it's, it's, you're in a bubble. 
Yeah. Do you feel, my last question really, do you feel optimistic about where food is going, where your food is going? Industry-wise, I feel very optimistic. I feel like that um, the industry is changing in a really positive way. Um, whether that's like how people are running their kitchens, who they're cho- choosing to allow to lead their teams, how they're leading their teams. I think with food, you know, luckily food is the only thing you can't really download. So like we're not going anywhere, but like, you know, so I think it'll be like we've had this boom in the food world. And I think that um, that I've, it's like anything that gets, you know, it'll plateau. How do you feel about your success? I don't ever want to be the best. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't want to be number one. Like Why? Because you're not number one forever. You know what I mean? Like you're never, no one's ever number one. That's it's. There's so much pressure that comes along with that. And like, I think in many ways I was terrified of success the first time I got it. And I was just like, I, th- I didn't know how to handle it. I feel optimistic about just being comfortable, you know, like with myself and you know what I make. Every food critic isn't coming in and being like, this is like the greatest thing I've ever had. Um, that's okay, you know, um, because at the that when you're going when we were going that hard to do that on the back end of things, we weren't able to like make sure we were taking care of ourselves or our team in the way that we are now. So, so yeah. Danny Bowen, thank you so much for being <laughs> on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate Thanks it. so much. Lila, I felt like I learned so much from that interview. I found what he said about authenticity and how it's kind of fetishized really interesting because I think it applies to so much in the culture. Um, and I'm interested in what, what you think that he meant when he said that we're living in a post-authentic world now. Yeah, I think that when we envision chefs in our mind, we have like a very specific image of what that looks like. And when we envision certain cuisines in our mind, we have a very specific vision of what that's supposed to taste like. And I think that his question is, was, is sort of why being authentic doesn't have to be about being um, true to a history, but it can be actually about being true to yourself, that that's a version of authenticity. And the other thing that I was thinking about when I was listening was the point that he made about um, kind of the physical space of a restaurant and the vibe that it gives off being almost, you know, almost more important than the food that's being served um, in what kind of makes a great restaurant. When you were talking to him, did you agree with that? I did. I was thinking honestly about like about the diner around the corner from my apartment that in itself feels very New York um, or in itself feels like an institution, you know, you know, the, uh, like a donut shop and diner. I found it very interesting to hear about how chefs think about their legacy, that as a chef, you can stop valuing being the best and start valuing stability or being an institution or creating something that when you walk in, you feel like it will last. I think there's something special about restaurants in New York. I think the eating out culture is different. Yes. There's something about the New York dining establishments. And I'm seeing them through an outsider's eyes. They have such a sense of like place and atmosphere and kind of verve and confidence about it. Yeah. That you feel like you're in, a, in its own, like you said in the interview, you're in, a, you're in a world. Right. Do you think that in London they don't do that the same way? I think the London food scene has improved massively and has been... Um, in lots of ways, like copying food trends that have been coming from New York and especially from L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not an expert at all, but, I, you know, I get the sense that the food in London used to be terrible, um, <laughs> like before I was alive, um, and now it's pretty good. Cool. 
You know, the other thing that I didn't expect this interview to leave me with, but I kept thinking about afterward, is a point that Danny Bowen didn't make extremely articulately in the interview, but 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 I liked and and that was that sometimes you don't need more of a concept than just this is what I wanted to do. His his restaurants aren't just subverting Chinese food. They're also just a reflection of his brand, like they're in a reflection of Danny Bowen. So the, so they're reflecting like what he wants to eat. Um, or he's serving you a version of his own identity, right? That, mm. you know, he said, I ate a few salads this morning and a bagel and some hot sauce because that's what I wanted. And I made this weird world because that's what I wanted. And I wanted my food to be accessible and to be fun and also to be interesting. And that's what it is. Um, and I found that sort of unpretentious uh, in a world that can easily feel kind of pretentious. That's it for this week. Remember, please send us your thoughts on astrology for our forthcoming episode. You can write to us, but we'd love it if you recorded a voice memo on your phone and emailed it over. We'll definitely ask before we use it. And if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends. Uh, You can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, which is one of the main ways that new listeners can discover our show. We'll both be back in two weeks' time with world-renowned relationship therapist Esther Perel, who will be revealing a lot about her next big podcast. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood. And our music is composed by Fatum. 